Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I am delighted to say a long-term friend of mine, Richard Stobart, is joining us. Richard is a successful entrepreneur in the software space, uh, which we'll get into. He's also had a lot of experience uh, in applying agile philosophies, techniques, mindset to software building, the building of software and the running of companies. So there's plenty to dive into. Uh, Richard, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. I don't know and, if um, there's such a thing as successful entrepreneur. You either an entrepreneur or a successful retired entrepreneur. <laughs> right. yeah, you never feel like you're successful on the journey. No, that's true. Yes. And we, just before we came on, you know, I was, I was saying how sometimes I have guests and I have a book, so I've got like these chapter headings in my head and where I'm about to take the conversation. But of course with you, I've just, it's Richard, it's you and, and your <laughs> life. So uh, I don't quite have the same uh, structure in my mind. And we were talking about you you, you kicked off with this uh, point that you've made uh, the journey from uh, poacher to gamekeeper uh, in your life. Just explain that and maybe we'll use that as our well, I think it's um, the expressions normally uh, poacher turned gamekeeper, but I think in, in my case, it's gamekeeper turned poacher, um, where I've been advising companies on how to build products for many, many years and building my own product company is much more difficult and much more nuanced than it is when you are the consultant telling someone how to do it. You know, um, we've run several courses, some of which um, we've run with you, Richard, um, on helping people accelerate their ideas, think about how they structure their companies, develop software, um, software products, but when you're actually in the thick of it, in the having to balance like how you spend your last 50 pounds um, or how you spend your last bit of runway before you get the next bit, it's much more complicated and much more difficult where you're trying to please existing customers, you're trying to keep your staff happy and motivated, you're trying to build as much value as you can as quickly as you can, and you're trying to do it with virtually no money is is a really complex juggling act that um, that doesn't come across when you are the external person saying, oh, just do this. Why don't you try this business model? <laughs> it's much more complex in real life. And I'm, I'm really enjoying the journey I'm going on at the moment. Um, so we started Chaiji three and a half years ago or so. Um, and we are now in the process quite far down the track. And, and just, just before we get further, what is Chaiji? Uh, Chaiji is... Uh, charge points for electric vehicles that go onto lampposts. So the uh, niche of the market is called on-street residential, where people don't have off-street parking, but they want to buy an electric car. They live in a terraced house in London, for example. They need somewhere to charge um, every day that's really convenient. So we put uh, charge points on lampposts, which right. is an interesting... Uh, interesting first product to delve into because it's selling to local authorities. It's a B2C because you're selling um, the end product to consumers, the sort of software product to consumers. Um, you're dealing with the motor vehicle industry and you're dealing with the um, sort of infrastructure, public infrastructure, and you're also dealing with the 
energy industry. So it's it's probably as many boxes as you can possibly tick um, in terms of challenges, which has been really interesting. Um, and it's been a fantastic journey so far. And it's, of course, a hardware and software. Hardware and software. Yeah, exactly. So all the um, lean startup type stuff that you want to apply to software, which is really easy because you can chop and change really quickly and all the stuff that's designed to run experiments on software is much more difficult on hardware where the costs and development cycles are so much slower and you're building physical products. So I think that's the stuff where eating our own dog food has been really hard because we'd like to experiment, but you're building a physical product that's going onto a public lamppost that has to, and it's, you know, high, high voltage. So it's got to be certified and safe. You can't just whip up a little experiment and see if someone will use it. Um, and then also designing the hardware. It's a, you know, it gets cast in aluminium. So, so there are ways to make it easier but, um, and quicker. But uh, it's still, you know, 10 weeks cycles to, to go from an idea to a physical product. Right. Yeah. Just makes and, it so much more complex. Yeah. And so, and the background here is you, you, you're running a, a, a software development shop, right? Uh, you, you help, you build software for other people and that was mm-hmm. unboxed. And then you had this moment of inspiration, right? When you're looking for a charging point, is that the, is that well, the story? Well, I think it was a bit more deliberate than that. So with unboxed, um, you know, unboxed has been going for a long time. It's, it's a services company, so it's never going to make um, good money. It's always going to, you know, just keep its head above water, sometimes dip a bit below the water, sometimes um, get the shoulders out, but you're never going to, you know, accelerate and, and make huge amounts of money, or we haven't found a way to do that. Um, and we find that all our customers are doing that. So we build a software product for one of our customers, and they go off to then make huge amounts of money from it and we are you know ongoing support for that product but that's not making us a huge amount of money and we're off looking for the next customer so we wanted to build our own product and um so we ran a little internal incubator sort of idea incubator i think we ran it for a week we took 64 ideas in came out with zero which was a learning in itself. Um, We had a couple of ideas that during that week, so one of the great ideas we had um, was create a, um, also a physical product, create a, um, one of those white canes for um, people with um, blind people or people with uh, bad sight. And, what we thought is we'd have a little like LIDAR or radar on the end of on, on the little golf ball at the bottom to give them through a sensor on their thumb on the top of the cane, a view of what was ahead. Um, and that was one of the ideas that went into this week long incubator. <laughs> and during that week, a BBC news article came out um, where some people had launched that in London and actually met them a couple of years later at an awards ceremony. In a, that you just pipped us to the post of that idea. Um, and they had a, a blind person on their team or a hard, oh, hard of 
vision. He wasn't 100% blind, he was sort of 70% blind. Um, but they had this device, exactly as we had envisaged it, that gives feedback, um, which, yeah. So that was one of the ideas, lots of other ideas, 64 ideas, none came to fruition. Then we took a... I mean, you say none came to fruition. You, 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 you sort of honest with yourselves and said none of these are, are goers. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. we did a, a very basic... Um, I think we did something like business model canvas for each of them. Um, and just explain what that is for people who are unfamiliar. Okay. Um, so business model canvas is Alex Osterwalder's um, business on a piece of A3. So you describe your customer segments, your value proposition, all the things, the partnerships and resources that you need to build that. And then the left-hand side goes to all the costs and the right-hand side goes to all the revenue streams. And it describes the business um, on a sheet of paper. And you can iterate on your business models to try and find if there is a way to make the business model fly. So the idea is that you can quickly generate different versions of your business model with the same underlying value proposition or the same underlying problem that you're trying to solve. Um, so Alex has got two books on it. Um, and there are a whole lot of videos online. There's a nice little three minute video, which uh, is a little cartoon showing how all the segments fit together and describe your business. So, we just create, um, and the way it looks as you do, uh, the bottom third of the page is a line broken into two halves. And then above that in the top two thirds, you do two uh, rugby posts. And uh, then you fill in those segments. So um, customer on the, on the left value proposition in the middle and uh, all the things you need in place on the right, partnerships on the end, um, and then in the right-hand rugby post, it's route to market and uh, um, the engagement customer relationship that you will have. And on the right-hand side rugby post, um, it is the resources that you need and the people that you need. I think those are the two. And then the bottom, it's uh, costs and revenue streams. And basically, you just need to get the costs lower than the revenue streams. Um, and you also have to have a value proposition that no one else is already executing on um, or business model that's slightly different from everyone else. So I think most of our ideas were rejected because someone was already doing something very, very similar. And we just thought we wanted something slightly different, um, yeah. which is why we rejected most of them. Anyway, anyway well, I think, but I think what's interesting there, just just dwell quickly on that that canvas point, is that it it's very rapid, isn't it, to create the idea and evaluate it. And for anybody who's sort of daunted by the idea of putting business plans together, which you know in your mind might be this great big long word document yeah. that's going to take you forever, you really can create one in like at least the, the bones of it in like fifteen twenty minutes, can't you? And and so it does allow you to cycle through so many more ideas. Yeah. So the first thing we do actually before. It's probably worth explaining our process because it's really useful. Um, the first thing we do is we create an elevator pitch and there's a clear structure for that. Um, and you talk about the customer segment, the thing you want to deliver to them, the need they have, 
what the competition's doing and how you differentiate from the competition. And there's a structure for it. And then we've also created this little tool, which is a very blunt tool. But basically what you do is you write that in that structure into a web page, click a button, and it'll generate you know, 30 or 40 risks or reasons why your business idea will fail. And the idea is you take, so basically <laughs> it does things like take the, say you say we want to build, um, a, I don't know, a paint product for people who don't like paintbrushes. Um, what's the need? There, there are people who don't like paintbrushes who want to express themselves and uh, use painting, but they don't like paintbrushes or something like that. What's the competition? Well, there's finger paints out there that sell it to children, market to children, but no one's marketing to adults. So actually we go and say, well, uh, it's actually adults who don't like um, using paintbrushes, but you know, some silly idea like that. And then you put that into this uh, risk generation tool and it says um, customers... Uh, adults who don't like paintbrushes don't value um, being able to express themselves or won't pay what you need to charge them to solve the problem or are already solving the problem of not using paintbrushes in another way. You know, so it just generates all those risks that people, you know, a lot of people when we run, um, and I'll talk about Tequala if you like, um, yeah. We run this um, accelerator in Cape Town um, over a period of a week, um, and we've run it four or five times now. Um, and we take entrepreneurs with a very um, young idea, or they've got an existing business and they they're trying to create a new product within that existing business or pivot the business. Um, and we take them through this really simple process, and everyone naturally thinks that their idea is perfect. So their customer segment is the whole world. You know, everyone needs their product. Um, everyone wants it's willing to pay. Everyone has the need. And so it's quite difficult to get them to, to sort of just write down what their idea is in a succinct way, which is what the elevator pitch does. And then it's also difficult to get them to see the flaws of it. You know, no one's going to pay for this. No one's interested. No one has that problem. Or only three people have that problem and they're all mates of yours. So they're paying because <laughs> they're mates. They're not paying because it's a real need. Or there's a really simple alternative um, solution to it. Like um, I remember the Eurostar did this and they totally forgot that there were ferries <laughs> doing exactly the same job. <laughs> and the ferries just dropped their prices. And suddenly the Eurotunnel was like, they were saying, well, there's no other Eurotunnel. It's like, yes, but they're boats floating above you. They can take more stuff faster and they can expand faster than you can build a new tunnel. So, um, so it's that sort of thing. What's the alternative? Are people willing to pay for your differentiators? So your, your product is slightly different and it's got a either price premium or a discount. And so anyway, so going through those two steps, elevator pitch and then list of risks um, is a really good starting point. And then you take that elevator pitch and you've already got the bare bones of the customer segments and 
the proposition and possibly thinking about the routes to market as well and the revenue streams you're going to generate. So you've started filling in the right-hand side of your business model canvas. Then you just need to do really quickly do some thinking about all the things that you need. So if you're running um, a SaaS business, you need obviously the platform that's going to do that, uh, which you need development teams, you need um, the hosting platforms, you need skills in that sort of area, but you also might need um, a sales team, you might need an implementation team, field services team to make your business and to describe your whole business in that one page is really useful. And then you can start iterating. Um, so Alex does a talk, which I think is online, um, around Nespresso. Yeah. And um, he also talks about um, the, the underlying drivers to make your business model successful. So are you Gillette, where you're selling the razor blade handles really cheaply and making all your money on the, on the blades? Or are you, I think the example he used um, is that photo sharing app, which has lost favor now, I can't remember the name of it. Um, or No, before uh, that. Uh, Flickr. Flickr, Flickr, right. where people, where the user, I suppose Facebook's the same example, where the user is the person creating the content. So if you are selling content, then you really want your user to be the, you know, do the bulk of the work for you. Um, or there's a cost of switching. So I suppose similar to Gillette, you, you feel that you bought the handle and so you just keep on using the razor blades. Um, or you have a subscription revenue, which is a bit like um, the Gillette model where you're constantly buying the same thing over and over again. So those sorts of factors you need to think about. And when you think about Nespresso, their coffee machines are the razor blade handles. And once you've got a Nespresso coffee machine, then you've committed to the lifetime of that machine of using their Nespresso pods. And you'll notice now that as their um, patent expired on the pods, they've introduced a new, more advanced machine with a new shaped pod to take the next generation of lock-in. So everyone upgrades to these new pods, which have got some sort of barcode or RFID, and it makes the coffee specific to that pod, but they've got the patent on that pod. So you buy the new machine for next to nothing through um, a network of distributors. So obviously they've got partnerships with Argos and John Lewis and They've got an online store and you know, all that stuff on the left-hand side of their business model. But what they're really doing is selling quite expensive pods. Um, you know, the coffee that goes into that pod must be worth less than one penny, but the pod you know, sells for, I don't know, 35p, 40p, 70p. <laughs> so, uh, so it's that sort of thinking around your business model. How do you structure a very simple thing, selling coffee? to be something that is really unique and has got those drivers for growth in your business model. So I think that I'm a big fan of the business model canvas. Some people find it useless um, because they think they know the whole thing, but it's a great communication tool and it's really quick and easy to do. 
And when you get into that sort of mindset of, of generating ideas, you can, you can generate three or four different canvases with the same value proposition um, to different customer segments, or you might have different revenue streams or writing down your revenue streams and thinking about all the possible ways you can get value from your value proposition um, is, is a way to quickly iterate on that and generate new ideas quickly. Um, yeah. And just to uh, help Alex a bit, there's also a book he wrote, which is, um, I forget the exact name of it, but it takes the value proposition in the customer segment and your value proposition does a whole lot of things and your customer segment has a whole lot of needs. And what you really want is your value proposition of your product to do the things that directly meet your customer's needs. Um, yeah. And we found an interesting one with electric cars, which uh, was obviously good for us when we were starting Chargy. And then all the things about why people want electric cars, what are the customer needs? You know, they, want, they want to not pollute the environment but they might also just want to have a nice fancy new car that's that shows that they're an early adopter, or they might love the experience of silent high-speed driving, or they might want the cost saving of being able to drive virtually for free, or they might just want to impress their neighbor. You know, there are a whole lot of reasons. And then you can go, and we were also big, um, proponents of going and speaking to people and going speaking to customers so when we generate this risk log what you really want to do is as soon as possible go and speak to customers or potential customers in that customer segment and find out whether there's also a thing called a javelin board which takes your risks that you've just generated from this little tool we have and then goes and helps you iterate so you take your customer segment you take your biggest risk your biggest risk is probably no one wants your product um so you've got to prove that they do want it and that's where all these experiments and false doors and um uh, mechanical turk type experiments work where you see a little ad for something and you click on it and it goes to nothing or it goes to um, a seed funders page where the product actually hasn't been built yet. All those things are just validating that people want to buy the product before the product actually exists. And the false door is what when you you put like a sign up page for something. Yes, but it's, it's you're not really signing up for anything. You're just showing your interest in this idea. And if you get loads of people signing up, then yeah, there's a great story um, that and all, all my stories a bit old now because I haven't really been. Um, consulting on this for a while, but um, I think it was TechCrunch. So one of the sort of trendy tech magazines. Um, so Facebook does the segmenting of their customer base and they constantly run experiments on, on you as a user. And the stat is something like for every 45 minutes on Facebook, you have one experiment run on you. Um, but they can segment their their users, so they would segment me into, you know, adults forty to sixty living in London, male, white, um, oh, with children. Yeah, you know, very very uh, targeted, um, and then they would run an experiment on that. And what they did was they created a segment of just 
I think it was TechCrunch, so just TechCrunch journalists. And they introduced, or they started talking about a feature, which was messaging by fax. And all the TechCrunch journalists picked up on it and wrote an article about how ridiculous this was. <laughs> and then Facebook came back and said, <laughs> what are you talking about? There's no such feature where they had just targeted that feature, which actually is a bit ominous if you think about what's gone on after that with Facebook targeted ads with Brexit and Trump. Yeah, that sounds very creepy, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So you can like, give a whole audience, a specific audience, a specific message. And uh, you can Google it. Um, if you, I think if you just Google hmm. facts, message, Facebook, TechCrunch, it'll come up with the story. But I guess the broader, the, yeah, the broader message here is that we can, we, it's now very cheap to run these types of tests, isn't it? It's yeah, very cheap yeah. to go out there on the internet and, and dangle something mm. to a particular population and, and see if they bite, right? Yeah. And you don't and it's have worth to, doing that. Yes. So you can do your value proposition without doing your brand, or you can do your yeah. brand without doing your value proposition, or you can just try and identify whether people have that need. So you're trying to find pain points, pains and gains um, and needs of a customer segment. And when you can solve someone's pain or give someone a gain, that's when you've got a value, a valuable value proposition. So people who are starting product companies focus, focus on the product. They come up with the idea of the product and then they try and fit it to people's needs. And as counterintuitive as it sounds, you really need to focus on the people's needs and then address that with your product. And having an idea of a product is a great start, but then try and be solution agnostic and move to thinking about what the needs are and validating that they're those needs. Right. And so, and to, to take it back, so you, You've gone through these sixty-four ideas. Yes, yes. Yeah, you, 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 you've gone through you've gone through all of these risks, and 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 basically zero, right? You zero. Know, none of these felt like they yeah. applied. So we kind of sat back for a bit, nursed our wounds, because um, it was quite a big expense. You know, we took people off projects for a week, um, and we focused on it. So it, it did cost us um, in terms of you know opportunity cost and actual lost revenue from not working for that week to do it. I think it. it shows strength of sort of character in you as a leader and, you know, the other people around you to, to allow yourself to say, to be that honest with yourselves, right? And to say, okay, this failed, right? There's, there's a, almost, mm. you know, there's something yeah. in that. Well, I suppose that failure is far cheaper than starting to build those products and then finding out a year down the line. <laughs> that actually there's someone doing exactly the same thing much better than you and, uh, you know, is already doing it and making revenue and, you know, much, much, much cheaper to fail fast. Um, But anyway, so what we did was licked our wounds, got back together, and then we took a small subset of people to to an Airbnb in Norfolk. And um, it was sort of just as the seasons were turning and – nice and rainy up in Norfolk in a big sort of manor house. Um, and we just had no agenda, no work to do. I think we gave everyone an hour or two 
during the day to keep their day jobs up to speed. But the rest of the time was just throwing around ideas, lots of post-it notes, lots of um, Sharpies, whiteboards, and just thrashing through ideas. And that was much more productive. And we came out with a whole lot of ideas, but whittled it down to three that we wanted to. Well, actually, we came down with about 10 that we started progressing um, to see if there was any traction. And quite quickly, we got traction for three of them. So I'll tell you what the ideas were. One, but, well, um, just, 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 just quickly before we get into it, I definitely want to get into that. But what was different then? How did, how did you have such, why was the success rate so much higher when you did the Airbnb move? I think there were, it was away from the office. So there were fewer distractions. Um, it was a smaller group of people. And I think doing it by yourself is really difficult, but also doing it with a large group of people, you can't kind of focus on ideas because even if you segment that group into smaller groups and go away and work in your group and come back, just the, the amount of communication that you've got to do. So 64 ideas with, I can't remember how many people we had, maybe 15 or 20 people. There's a lot of communication. So you've got to tell 24 people, 64 ideas, and then you've got to listen to 64 times 19 bits of feedback about each idea. Um, And so you spend a lot of time being distracted because you're bored yeah. where, and you haven't bought into you know, maybe 60 of those ideas and you're listening to all this feedback and you just want to, you, you know, everyone has got a, a different set of ideas that they have bought into and they are trying to sell their ideas. I think this happens if you've ever been to um, one of those startup weekends, that kind of happens that no. you can't, so it's like a whole lot of people in a sort of warehouse type of office, maybe you know, a couple of hundred people. And then you have a very, on Friday night, you have a, a pitch session with all the ideas very quickly. You've got like two minutes to pitch your idea. And then you go and stand and people cluster towards the ideas they're interested in. And then you spend the rest of Friday night and the whole of Saturday arguing about the idea with a whole lot of people that have got slightly different variants on that idea and then by Sunday morning when you're running out of time and half the people haven't come back you then go and try and validate some of the original idea that you had on Friday night Um, and I think what those sort of startup weekends would benefit from is going through a fixed time box process where you don't have forever I mean I've been on a couple and a lot of time is spent like arguing about who owns equity in the idea where someone on Friday and I pitched for two minutes and other people are throwing ideas in and suddenly everyone starts thinking, Oh, this could turn into the next big thing. I want to make my claim. It's my idea or I want at least 50% of it. And it's really nothing. It's like a, <laughs> a sentence. You've got nothing. 50% of this chat. <laughs> yes. And then you just spend all the time, you know, arguing about stuff and, and then the person whose original idea it was feels that they the curator of any new ideas coming in and the gatekeeper and yeah. So I, I believe that there is a, a well-defined process with some 
people that can move you through that process is very valuable. And that's what we, we sort of had with the, the big uh, week-long internal one. Um, but cutting it right down, changing venues. So one of the good things about Tequala is that it takes people out of their comfort zone. Um, so you're not sitting in an office in London. You're sitting out on the grass in the sunshine in December in Cape Town, or you're climbing up a mountain and thinking about, you know, as you look out over the sea and over the, the mountains in the distance, you're thinking about your five-year vision. And it just gives you a different perspective and it puts your brain in a different frame of mind. And um, when we went to to Norfolk, we we took a whole lot of um, food that we cooked ourselves, but we also went out to a couple of pubs and enjoyed ourselves. Um, it was very relaxing, um, quite a tight-knit, energetic bunch of people, which helped. Um, so we're now you're at like four or five people, are you? What? Yeah, I think there were five of us. Yeah. Five. Um, which when you think about the stories of most businesses that we hear about in mythology, it tends to be like a, a few people, isn't it, down the pub or two or three mates and... Yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't, don't tend to hear them having been created out of, you know, big yeah. events of you know, dozens of people. When, you, I when think I think other, about it. The other elixir that we had was that Unboxed had a bit of capacity and cash to support these ideas. So we didn't spend any time fighting about ownership. And we also didn't have to worry too much about who was going to pay our salaries while we experimented. And that luxury is something many, many, many founders don't have. So I think I have started running these sorts of things and being interested in building my own business in later life because I've now got a financial foundation. So I think it's the very beginning when you are still living at home or your monthly expenses are a couple of hundred pounds and you're living in um, a shared room somewhere um, and riding a bicycle around and eating you know, peanut butter sandwiches. You've got very, very low expenses. You can afford to generate a bit of a runway and try some stuff. But then you move into the stage of your life where you've got a partner, you've got a mortgage, you've got a, a children, you know, a whole lot of things that take up your time and energy and money and you don't have that luxury. You've probably got a full-time job and you don't have a, a sort of war chest to build your own startup and fail. You know, you, you don't, you need enough traction to remortgage your house. And it's very difficult to get that while you're doing a full-time job and being a good father and being a good partner. So, or good mother and a partner, um, and so I think that you've got to pick your moments. You've got to find that, that gap where you can. Um, and I think my story with Chaji is I had just got divorced. So I was used to spending every night with the children and you know, doing my day job. And then I now found myself sitting at home alone for half the time in the evenings. And I just threw myself into learning about charge points and trying stuff, which kept myself busy and 
I, I just had that gap and I thought, let's look for the silver lining in this. Let's try and build something that's useful. Um, and so I think Chargy wouldn't have taken off as it did if I had not separated. Just right. because I didn't have that opportunity. And I think, I think that is a big unspoken barrier that if you work for a company that's not interested in funding your idea, it's very difficult and you've got a mortgage and um, a family. It's very difficult to create that space to do this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and it does take a lot of your time. Yeah. And people don't say that people think, you know, you think about the idea and getting some funding and off you go, but actually it takes much longer than you think. And it takes a personal um, emotional commitment to something that you might then have to ditch after a year or two. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And you hopefully won't be ditching your mortgage and your jo day job and your house and your family to do that. So yeah. I think that's the unspoken thing. And what I was saying about this Norfolk day, this Norfolk week is that Unbox provided that safety net. So everyone in there worked for Unboxed and Unboxed was going to, we put a, um, an IP mechanism in place so people would get some equity, but Unboxed was using employees to generate these ideas that would be owned by the employee and the company. And we tried to make it as generous as possible, but as safe as possible for people to get involved in this. So if it got any traction, then Unboxed would pay both their salary and for finding out if there was more traction for the right. first bit. You know, not limitless, but you know, let's put five grand and a month's effort for a couple of people into getting some traction. That sort of level of commitment, which for Unboxed isn't a huge amount of money, but for someone, you know, paying out of their post-tax salary, if you're trying three or four ideas at five grand in a month each, you know, you're, going to, you're going to run out of runway very quickly. You, right. you kind of need the first one to work yeah. or you need to spend a hundred pounds on each one and then another hundred pounds. And then, you know, so it's slower. And so we had that bit that we could add to it. Right. And one of the three from the Norfolk crew was, uh, was charging. Is that right? One of the three ideas. Yes. So I think there were about 10 that came out that we we spent a little bit, not five grand, not a month's effort, but we spent you know maybe two or three days on each idea and tried to get a bit of traction, tried to shape it into something and see if we got any traction. And almost immediately three of them got some traction. Oh okay. And and, um, and to just to clarify, that was a that was a whole week you spent in Norfolk. Yes. Yes. Right, so that that really is a big investment, isn't it? That's that's five of your presumably best people, or you know, senior people, in a house in Norfolk, out of the business. So yeah, that's a that's a sizable investment in itself, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. And 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 different to what you hear about, you know, you hear a lot of companies they'll put on like a hack day, uh, and it will be a big event and it'll be very motivating, but very often not a lot comes from them. I mean, sometimes it does. I had the. Uh, the senior vice president of Twitter on here. And he talked about, you know, some of their best features that come out of exactly mm. that type of hack day. But, mm. um, 
But I think it seems like a a good a good commitment. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is the ownership. So Twitter hack days, those ideas are owned by Twitter. Yeah. And you're a Twitter employee who's doing a day job, and then you're taken out of your day job and put into a new environment where you can express yourself. But you're still a Twitter employee working on features for Twitter. So although they're ideas, they're not new businesses. Yeah. And I think the problem with the first iteration where we had the 64 ideas and got none out, the, if someone had a golden idea, they weren't just going to throw it into the unbox pot to be swept along and unbox claim it. And I think that's the problem you have. Whereas the second one, we had done some more thinking about the equity and we had had people who were willing to contribute to the overall growth of these ideas, knowing that if one of them took off, that they would be part of that journey. Right. Yeah, that's an important point, I suppose, for people listening. You know, if you're really interested in establishing new business lines, new business units. Mm. I think we we ran a... Think about um, that. Yeah, we ran a internal accelerator for a business and it got a lot of buy-in to run the accelerator and take people out of their day jobs for, I think they did a day, day a week for six months or something. And the, the, where they, it, it just didn't quite get traction. And where it lost was that the board approved the spend. The board said that the people could have the time to do it. But the direct line manager wasn't told that there, someone else had to take that person's day job. So the day job stayed at 100%. And no board member sponsored any idea. Right. So you're in a big organization with a heavy sort of layers of management above you. And you got the original funding and you got paid for some people to come in and run an accelerator for you but you didn't have anyone opening any doors, pushing your idea forward at a senior level. And yeah, so the person running it, I think he sat on the board or he was a, um, he attended the board meetings, but wasn't on the board. And he had all these people that were generating these great ideas, but he couldn't get them to the board to stop focusing on their day job and report on the innovation. So they were trying to change their business. They were in a business that um, that is dying. Um, I don't want to say who they are, but um, you know, maybe think of Kodak. You know, and <laughs> um, so they had this big threat of the stuff that they do not being mainstream in the future, and having this real impetus to change their business and the idea that they want to fund this startup culture within quite a staid business in order to revolutionize the whole business. But they just had reports at the board level. They didn't actually have board members rolling up their sleeves and trying to change the super tanker's direction. Right. Or, or to create that space, right? As you say, they're not backfilling these employees who want to run with it. And, yeah. and, and were they giving equity to the, the people who were running with these ideas? Nope. Right. So there's, as you say, nobody's going to put their heart and soul 
their golden idea into something and spend yeah. their weekends and evenings on it if they're if, yeah. if there's no equity in it right and worst case scenario i think is there is a golden idea that the employee gets totally motivated by and then leaves and takes the idea with them <laughs> right so you've sponsored the the incubation of that idea <laughs> and then when the egg hatches <laughs> you don't own the chicken or the go- right. golden goose Right. Yeah. So there's an interest but both both ways in creating some kind of equity arrangement up front. Yeah, wow. yeah. I think that's really important to think about. And so there's equity and sponsorship. And both of those, and sponsorship isn't just money. Right. It's your seniority and influence with like in the business, with the business units, opening doors to customers. So, you know, if someone from the board of this company could phone up a key customer and say, do you want to partner with us on this startup idea? That's so much easier than someone five or six levels down trying to push at a customer yeah. to do something that's sort of outside of what your business normally does. And, yeah, it's just so much easier to have people mentoring you through that. So you can do all the hard work, you can drive the journey, you can provide the energy, but having that board member who buys into that idea. Yeah, I, I found that in a similar, there's a parallel to that, not in terms of creating new business units and startups, but I've worked in, in change, you know, change, change management, change leadership within organizations. What I'll often do is I'll create these, these creative events where you come up with just simple change innovations, maybe to a work process or to, you know, to mm-hmm. the way that a team's organized and so on. And you'll go out of the room with a commitment to do something. And yeah, as you say, there's no commitment to backfill that person to give them the time to actually go and make those changes, right? Because it's mm. it is extra work. There's no sponsorship at the top level, as you've just described. So I think that pattern of putting all the energy behind the creative event, but not putting an equal amount of energy in the follow-up and the environment that allows those uh, ideas to come to fruition is a really important point. Yeah, and I think it's the burning bridges as well. Like if your business truly is sinking, um, and I'm not talking about the Titanic, I'm talking about like a slow, slow leak. Um, you want to take people to the next thing. You, know, you want to say our sales team of 50 people, three of them are going to go to this new venture and put heart and soul into it because that's where we think the next thing is. So you, you, in a way, you do need to start burning those bridges. Right. You know, that big yeah. project we worked on many years ago together, the legacy system, they stopped doing the changes to the legacy system so that everyone had to move to the new one. Unfortunately, right. the new one just took so long to build that there was this <laughs> two-year gap in the middle. It made the jump very difficult. But you do need yeah. to you know, stop the legacy if you think that the new business is going to be the future. Yeah, yeah. Which is what you, which to some extent you were doing a version of that with knowing that your future wanted to be a product company. Yeah, you you mm. you took time and energy away from the services business to create the sort of foothold yes. in the future. So, okay, so I know we've got eight minutes left, Richard. I, I really want to get us to where you are now. So you've got... Right. 
you've got this idea of so presumably 10 becomes three and presumably three becomes one and that's charging is that right uh yes but those three becoming one um so i'll tell you what the quickly what the three are one is um a modern invoicing financing platform that plugs into zero um and uses all the stuff within zero and all the online um, which is an invoicing platform yeah yeah uh so invoice so, so zero is um, an accounting package accounting in general isn't it yeah. yeah um and what you want to do is to to do a bit like market invoice but for the whole book of invoices where you can just click a button and it it gathers all the data so it looks up the customer on the company's house it does an equifax risk assessment on the customer on you does all of that and just gives you an amount of money in your bank account for that invoice as streamlined as possible. Um, so that was one. The only reason that, and we, we registered the company, we built the proof of concept, we got some funding to uh, to actually fund the invoices. But what happened was the other two gained so much traction that we just didn't have time to invest in in this. So it was called Lift, Lift Money. And the idea was... Um, it was a lift invoice financing technology um, was the name of it. And it was meant to lift you up um, or lift your money up. The next one is still going. So the next one is a community interest company for local authority services. So you build a service with one local authority, put the IP into um, the not-for-profit, which is called Logov. And then other local authorities can use that service and pay a rental for the service like they would for any of the other big system integrators that do this. But because it is a community interest company, the idea is that any money you generate either goes back to paying the original local authority who invested in the base technology until they back to zero all goes to covering the cost of running it, which is ongoing maintenance um, of the platform and also paying for the platform costs, all goes to enhancing the feature set. There's no, um, you know, trying to milk local authorities. Yeah. And there are a lot of local authorities and there are a lot of services they need to run. And that got a bit of traction and then sort of staggered for a couple of years and now it's getting a bit more traction. So that's still going, um, one of our, directors runs that and it's always very interesting and a couple of other ideas have come from other local authorities that are looking for a home for things they've built and want other authorities to use so so that's going but it hasn't got quite the traction of chargey chargey um got two bits of traction right up front one was um friend of mine who um was exiting his business and looking at ideas, committed a bit of cash and also gave us access to an electrical engineer um, who could help us build the prototype. And the other thing was we had traction from a council who were very interested in trialing and wanted to invest some money in you know, buying future charge points. That actually didn't end up happening. Um, for a host of reasons, but it was enough traction to get us 
the first step of investment and get us the prototype. And then we built the thing. We had lots of interest from lots of local authorities. And eventually we had one that trialed three on lampposts. So it's in Marlow in Buckinghamshire. And they're still there looking a bit, uh, bit weather-beaten. Um, so that must have been a moment, you know, thinking you had this thought in this Airbnb in Norfolk and here it is on the yeah, street. It, it was a great moment and many, many months, many months later. So we had some real dips, like trying to get the th- thing certified in America with, with people that were just you know, unbelievably unhelpful. Um, trying to get local authorities to trial one where local authorities typically want zero cost, zero risk, share of the upside, no effort. (laughs) (laughs) And a product that other local authorities are already using, which is really difficult. So it's been a long, hard journey, but uh, we're about to install another, in the next uh, two and a half months, we about to install another 500 or so, bring us up to 1,000. And we are in the final stages of getting some Series A investment, which is really exciting. And and of those people in the the, the Norfolk crew, do some of them now have IP in in charging? Yes, they do. That's great. Yeah. So four out of the five have some level of IP in the company. Yeah, as in, yeah, they have, they have equity in it. That's, yeah. that's great. So they either have equity in Unboxed, which has equity in Chargy, or they have... Oh, so, the, so Unboxed itself has equity and they have equity. Yeah. But presumably that now gives you a lot of credibility if you want to go back to un- Unboxed and play the same process out is, you know, if we've done this once, we've created something... Absolutely. Some of, yeah. some of you guys have now got equity in it. You know, that, that's really set you up potentially for the future. Yeah. And we've learned a whole lot about what not to do as well. Um, and I suppose the other thing that was really useful for us was SCIS uh, investment, which it's an incredible incentive scheme. And, you know, if, if you were starting up a business, make sure you do all the things that qualify you for SEIS. And then, just... I know we've got 60 seconds. So what does that mean? <laughs> and I know this is only in the UK, right? But just, you know, what, what is SEIS? So it gives the investor Thanks. a whole lot of downside protection. They immediately get 50% of the investment back as a tax deduction up to 100,000. And it gives the business 150,000. It also gives the, the investor is tied to a whole lot of things that so they have to stay in for three years. They can't take a control. Um, very good for the business, but also really easy access to proper seed funding, 150 grand of seed funding. And for the yeah. investor, um, you get no capital gains. Um, you get 50% of your investment back. So you put 100,000 in and you get a 50 thousand uh tax rebate um on your income tax you also if the business goes wrong the remaining fifty thousand you can write off against other gains so you can net them off against other gains 
So I think the downside protection is 86%, which is incredible. Um, right. And then obviously the upside, you get the capital gain savings on the investment and hopefully the business goes well and you make a lot of money because you were in at the seed level. Yeah. Fantastic. So for anybody in the UK, it sounds like there's an, 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 uh, this kind it of stage. Definitely exist in other places too. There's a similar thing. I know there's a similar thing in South Africa. Right. Um, but there are... Schemes kind of, of this nature as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. That help seed investment. Great. Well, thank you so much. And I know you've got a, a demo to a VC, right? Yeah. That's yeah. your next meeting. So I don't want to keep you from that. And I, I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank um, you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been great. We'll put, put the links to your ventures below and some of the resources you mentioned. Great. Thanks, Richard. Richard. Thanks again. Cheers. I'm happy Bye-bye. to come back and uh, finish the conversation at some later date if you want. Sure. I know I'll ramble a lot. All right. Thanks, Richard. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.